Hey, would you open your Bibles to the book of Galatians on this journey that we are in? Um, it's on page 228. Jim, we need to cover that, and you're like, why, why can't we just get pag- like uniform pagination? Pray about that. For I do, verse 10, now persuade men or God, question mark, this is from Paul, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. One more time, Galatians 1.10, for do I now persuade men or God? In other words, am I trying to convince God of something or am I trying to convince man of something? Or do I seek to please men? Am I seeking to please God or men? He says, for if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Father, I uh, ask for you to give us wisdom into your word this morning, that it would be a lamp, that my words are not a lamp, your words are a lamp. It's your word that's a light to our path. And I just pray that it would speak to us, that this is a supernatural communication from you to us. It's not an academic exercise. And so our spirit, we just want it to be filled with your spirit and for you to speak to us Teach us, counsel us, comfort us, all those things you promised that the Holy Spirit would do to us. We just receive that and believe it in Jesus' name, amen. At the end of uh, the Second World War, and some of you may have heard this story, it's a true story, there was a man named Hermann Goering, and Hermann Goering was Hitler's number two guy, which means he was pretty much a jerkwad. And... Also, alongside being a jerkwad, he was a collector, a connoisseur of art, of paintings, of fine paintings. And Herman had, over the uh, course of the war and his time as uh, a, a Nazi guy, I guess that's what the Craigslist ad would say, I right? wanted Nazi guy, um, collected art, stole art, used money that he'd stolen to get art, and the only piece of art that he didn't have that he wanted was a piece by Vermeer. The reason he wanted a piece by Vermeer was because Hitler had two of them and he had none. Everything else he had wasn't good enough because he's still trying to impress his friends by showing that he's got that. And so over time, he finds an art dealer, a Dutch art dealer named Hans van Meegren. And van Meegren, as fate would have it, happened to have a Vermeer that he sold him for what would be in today's dollars, $10 million dollars. And now he had his painting and he could impress all of his friends at Nazi parties and the the, the Nazi dances and they they look at the Vermeer and at the end of the war, of course, it didn't turn out so good for Hitler and others. And while Goering was on trial at the Nuremberg trials, they had been doing investigations and trying to figure out all those that had aided and abetted, and they found out in the course of this that it was a guy named Van Meegren that had sold him this painting, and so they brought him on charges of treason. And Van Meegren, during this trial, tells the prosecutor, tells the judge, you know what, I am guilty, but not guilty of treason. I didn't sell that Nazi of Vermeer, I painted it myself, I'm a forger. And he was ultimately tried as a forger, given a year in prison, and died a hero to the Dutch people. (laughs) Which is fun enough, but it gets better because here is Goering at his trial, 
finding out for the first time, and you can imagine, maybe even empathize maybe a little bit with this guy and the look on his face when he found out that his painting, and Brandon, you might especially appreciate this as a painter yourself, when he found out for the first time that his $10 million Vermeer was a forgery. His biographer wrote in his book later that it was almost as if, the look in his eye was almost as if he had discovered for the first time that there was evil in the world. A Nazi. <laughs> as I was, I heard that story a few weeks ago and I thought, man, what, it's just so, the greatest and the smallest of us have this thing inside of us that I want to impress my friends. I want to please people. I want you to like me. I appreciated Jeremy last week talking about how, as a worship guy, sometimes you go home and, man, there were no text messages today, so I don't know, do they like me, do they not? And it's completely illogical. Like, I get it, like, completely illogical. I actually stopped checking my phone till Monday for a period of time because I was so like, oh, man, I must have sucked this morning because I didn't get anything from the And by the way, if you text me today, I'll know that you just did it because of that. So let's just say right now, you don't have to, there's no pressure, don't. But, but that's part of this thing inside of the core of humanity. But I want you to plea, I want to plea, I want you to be impressed with me. And I want, you know, you want me to be impressed with you and you want me to like you and I want you to, that's just at the core of who we are. And it's honestly, I don't believe a sinful thing. I believe at the heart of who we are, God created who we are and even though we live in a fallen world that at the core of who we are, that that's a a desire that we have in all of us. If you don't care how somebody feels, if you go through your life completely unconcerned with how somebody feels or thinks, you are a sociopath. That's what that is. Like, that's how people get to prison because I didn't care about someone else. I wasn't thinking about their feelings. So at the core of us, that's a, a, a good thing that's good in us. We want to please God and please each other. But when it steps into the addiction phase, when it's into the I am literally, I feel like a doormat. I feel like I am, uh, everybody's using me. I feel like I have no time for myself. All those things that happen and you recognize them maybe in some of your lives, some of you don't, congratulations. But if that's your feeling, that's the the part where I believe where Paul was talking about here about being a people pleaser. The part there in Proverbs 29, 25, you can write it down, go it later, go there later. But if you're concerned about the feelings of others and what they're thinking about you, Proverbs 29, 25 says it's a trap. And that's not an inaccurate phrase because many of us have been in a situation, be it a job, a church, a relationship, where I didn't want to rock the boat and I didn't want to hurt somebody's feelings, and so I let myself be bulldozed over because I didn't want anybody to be mad at me. And when we left last week, I I kind of posed the question of this, what's the tension here? The Jesus said to be a servant, right? So what's the tension between me being a servant and me being a doormat? What's What's the difference between me loving my wife like Christ loves the church and being a pansy. What's the difference between a wife respecting her husband and speaking up at a time when it really is important to speak up? There's this tension in between, and I think that Paul answers the question in this one verse and this one idea and what it means to be a bondservant. When Mark spoke a couple weeks ago, he's talked about our identity and how important it is to understand the identity in Christ. And I think that sometimes we get caught up in the metaphor. The danger of a metaphor is now I think I fully understand this idea. A metaphor is, it is like this. It is like that. It's not this or it's not that. And so the metaphor of a son 
is in the scripture and it is like being a son, like being a daughter. But because God is other, because God is infinite and God is vast, there is no language. Our language fails us. Our metaphor fails us to understand the completeness of it. And so for now, I get a glimpse of it as, yeah, I'm, it's a son. I'm, I'm like a son. Another phrase that the New Testament uses is slave, servant. And I believe that that metaphor gets us caught up because the word slave in our language, in our culture, in what we have an idea of what a slave is, feels like how could I be a son and a slave at the same time? Are those not incongruent? Are those not mutually exclusive ideas? And I believe it would be if the word bondservant meant what I thought it meant. You keep on using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> in the culture of the Jewish people, the culture that Paul grew up in and was raised in, in the culture that Jesus was around, the bondservant was a servant that had, in the Jewish culture, you, if you were a servant, had six years. And I would encourage you to go research this in the Old Covenant and to see the picture of it and to see that, hey, God was taking a, a culture that we had that maybe wasn't perfect and saying, but I'm going to still redeem it. And a bondservant in the culture of the Jewish people, if you were a servant, you had six years. And on the seventh year, you were allowed to go free. It was not in perpetuity. It was not a forever thing. But a bondservant was a servant that at the end of that six-year period, seventh year, the year of freedom, of like, I can go free, says, my master was so good. Think about this. So kind, so generous, so wonderful to me that I want to stay. And in the culture, it meant that if you were a Jewish family and you had servants, you were going to be really, really good to them because you, you wanted them to stay. And if they decided to stay, what that meant was that the master would take care of them everything they needed. That their food, their clothing, their shelter, as Jesus would say later, that consider the lilies of the field. They don't want for clothing or shelter. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all those things are added unto you. He was saying that the bondservant idea was that the master would take care of you. And so a bondservant was a servant that said, I had a chance to go do my own thing. I had a chance to go ring my own bell, to pursue my own deal, but you're so good to me and so kind that I'm gonna stay here. You can't be a people pleaser and a bond servant of Jesus simultaneously. I cannot be blue and red at the same time. Those are mutually exclusive ideas. I cannot be, un, I guess Katy Perry says it best, hot or cold. I, I've got to be one or the other. <laughs> Lukewarm, not, not something that Jesus is a fan of. See Revelation 3 for further, speaking of stomach virus. <laughs> Because it says, I'll spew you out of my mouth if you're lukewarm. The word spew, meaning I'm going to hurl. And I guess the question is why? How is it, why is that the ticket out? How is it possible that just the simple idea of me understanding the identity that I am, that who I am in Christ, as a son, of course, absolutely, as a bondservant, as someone who had a chance to go and said, I'm staying because you're so good. By the way, the way that a bondservant would be known uh, amongst their community, the way that they committed that they're going to be there was they would take their uh, ear and they would drive a, a wooden stake through it to signify that hole. And I wonder sometimes if, it, you know, speaking of the piercing of Jesus' hands, but it's right by the ear that just means you're listening to the voice of God. 
Today, I think that our ticket, and I say this because you know what, in our world right now, there is that tension, how do I not be a doormat? How do I do that? How, what is it? And it really comes down to this simple identity of what does it mean to be a bondservant of Jesus? A servant that says, I know God that you are so good and I could go anywhere but I only want to go where you tell me to go and say what you tell me to say because you are infinite. The, the best, most kind and generous master on the face of the earth would still be a drop in the bucket of the kindness and the goodness of God. When I was having coffee, actually with Mark this week, he, he made a statement, and I'm probably going to butcher it, so forgive me, but he said, I think that God is just pleased when we just stretch the boundaries of how good we believe he is. Like when we believe, we stretch the boundaries of how much, how good we think he is. We think he's good. What if he's even better than we think? What if he's even gooder than we think? We're in the South. I can say gooder, right? I mean, I live in College Grove. I can say whatever we want, right? <laughs> he's gooder than we think he is. That that pleases him. We press the boundaries. And if we say that, man, our master, our father is better than we would give him credit for, that really pleases him. How good do you think God is this morning? How kind and how generous do you believe him to be? What if you took it a step further and think, man, what if he's even better? What if he's even gooder? As I was reading it this week and realized, and we're gonna get into this as the weeks go on, that Galatians really is a story of a people that, that dared to say that God is not as good as he said he was. It's a group of people that were saying, hey, God, uh, when in the cross that Jesus says it is finished, that they would say, well, almost. I got a pair of scissors out in the car, and I, we're gonna, we got to press through a little bit on this. The, congratulations, you're saved, but if you're not circumcised, sorry. They're saying that he wasn't as good as they said he was because you need to do this extra thing. And in our world, maybe we don't press in on that. We don't understand that concept, and I promise you most of us don't. But whatever it is, add anything into that. Hey, Jesus is great. You're saved by the grace of God. You're justified just as if you'd never sinned. Congratulations. And now we're going to add three or four more things onto this list of what you need to do to be a real Christian. To get really blessed, you're going to have to do this. To really be accepted into the kingdom of God, you've got to do that. That's the story of Galatians. Is Paul coming to this area and saying that is not true? That it is by grace that is by faith that we are saved that's what we're going to be talking about in these coming weeks and you might think I already understand that but one of the conversations I had this week was I, I, I get that academically but it's it's not the idea that I reject it's the implications God is better than I actually think that's what we're going to go to but it's also a story not of just this doctrinal debate but of two apostles one who was caught in a trap of pleasing people in Peter, and one who was standing up to Peter and saying, no, 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 God is better, and I, I, he is so good that it is so worth it for me to risk my relationship with you to speak up, to risk my own credibility to say that what you're saying about God is wrong, to risk being castigated on the Galatians Facebook group, I heart Galatia. That God is gooder than that, right? And so he's challenging him. And I was really praying about it this week because I thought, you know, here's Peter just doing what he, he's not a bad guy. These are his friends. When he comes to Galatia and he says, 
to he runs into his Jewish buddies that are there and they're saying, no, look, no bacon and you gotta be circumcised. And so his friends are there and he's just kind of rolling with what his friends were saying. But when his friends weren't there from Jerusalem, when he's over here hanging out with his buddies who are the Gentiles, the guys that are not Jews, he's saying, you know what? God gave me this vision. We can eat bacon. It doesn't, you know, Acts 15, which wasn't written yet. We don't have to worry about circumcision. I'm all there for you guys. And what he found himself was where we find ourselves a lot, which is kind of just rolling with the punches, which is kind of just, hey, I'm with this group of people. I'm going to be this person. When I'm with that group of people, I'm going to be that person. And Paul had the courage to stand up and say to Peter, it actually says in chapter two, he got in his face. That's the Darren Tyler translation. But to his, I withstood him to his face is King James, for I got in his face because it was that important to Paul. But I noticed something this week, and if you don't mind a little bunny trail, and if you do, the chairs up here are really comfortable. You can take a quick nap, and I'll wake you up when I get done with this. But for the rest of you who want to stay awake for this, there's a little journey that I saw this week that I'd never noticed before that really stood out to me, that when I compare Peter and Paul, I realized that just like a guy like Gehring, who's one of the most wicked men on the face of the earth who lived to desire to please people, that Peter and Paul probably found themselves not unlike you and I. That even Paul, on this day, he's doing it right, and he said, I got in his face. That there are other times in his life where Paul was, he's kind of going with, with the, didn't want to really rock the boat kind of thing, which is impressive because Paul didn't seem to mind to rock the boat. Paul would actually sink a boat at one point. Like, he was not afraid of the boat. But when I looked in chapter 2, verse 7 of Galatians, and if you don't mind turning over there, he says, and I've, by the way, if you weren't here last week, I broke out my mama's King James Bible, uh, because it had large print and it's working out much better for my eyes. So instead of having to borrow Tim Bassanio's reading glasses, I can, uh, I can read without that. Hey, would you turn on the light back there, by the way? Because I'm asking you to follow along and then we've turned the lights off, so how about that? We're getting ready to land. Wake up, right? This is like when you're on the all-night flight. And the... Whoa. Whoa. Where am I? We're trying to find the balance of this because these fluorescent lights are like soul vacuums, right? They just suck the life out of you, but it's so dark, then you go to sleep. So we've just been praying about, should we put some LEDs? Just welcome to what we're, you know, welcome to having a building, right? In chapter two of Galatians, verse seven, he says, but contrawise, how about using that in a sentence? When they saw the gospel of uncircumcision was committed unto me, speaking of Paul, and the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. In verse 8, parenthetically, it says, For he has wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision. The same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. Now, I want you to, I want you to know straight up, I'm about to go into an opinion and conjecture. This is not a thus saith the Lord. This is, a, this is really interesting, and I really think this is what maybe the Lord was, was happening here, and I just want to float it by you because it really spoke to me as, I, as it all unfolded. He's saying here that Peter was committed to, called to, reaching out, and you can cross-reference this with other passages, primarily to the Jewish people, to the circumcision. The gospel of is committed to him, and he's going to do that. And he says to Paul, on the other hand, to me, I was committed to the gospel of the uncircumcision, to the Gentiles. And if you go back to Acts 9.15, 
You see that there was a prophet and he said to Paul, look, this is awesome, you're being called and you're called first to the Gentiles, secondly, the syntax of this, I believe important, to their kings and thirdly, to the Jewish people. And if you wanna hold your finger there in Galatians and go with me to Acts because it's really quite comical to me, especially as a guy that's a pastor. So that's verse 17 where Ananias is speaking to him. There's 17. And he says, man, this is your calling, and around, I guess around 15. Anyway, but here it, it goes on to say, down in verse 30 of, and 31, Paul has now, you're called to the Gentiles, to their kings, and to the Jews. And what does Paul do? Where's the first place he goes? Jerusalem, where the uncircumcised were not, where the Gentiles were not. I'm called here, but I'm going there. And what happens? He gets the tar beat out of him, which is why he gets sent to Tarsus. Write that down. That was actually not as funny as I thought. Paul, after a while, he has caused nothing but consternation, beatings. And he is, he is sent by verse 31, it says in chapter 9, and then he is sent to Tarsus. And then, I love this, and then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit were multiplied. In other words, Paul goes away and the church explodes. Paul goes away and the church is growing like crazy now. Kind of the thing you don't want to hear on your resume. Here's my resume. I left and the church grew. It's kind of like we noticed that when I'm out of the country that our attendance goes up and not down. So I'm not sure what that means, but that seems to be the case. But Paul called to this uncircumcised people, finds himself in Jerusalem, gets himself in trouble. Peter called to the circumcised Jerusalem, gets himself in trouble. How do I know that? Go with me to the book of 1 Peter. Hold your, you don't have to hold your finger in Acts. You can keep the Galatians one and go with me to 1 Peter. I promise there's a point. Because in 1 Peter, as I was really praying about it, thinking, okay, this is Peter's life. This is about AD 40-ish, about 20 years after where Jesus had ascended. Now, the book of 1 Peter, 2 Peter, if you were to look at scholars and what they believe, these books were written sometime around 60 to 64 AD. 15, 10 to 15 years after this guy got in Paul's, Paul, I got in his face. You can't be a bondservant and a people pleaser at the same time. 10 to 15 years later, Peter is now writing a letter. And incidentally, he's writing it, it says in those first couple verses, to the people in the area of Galatia. He's writing this letter, among other things, back to that people. But look where he's writing it from. Chapter uh, 3, verse 1. It would help if I'm actually in 1 Peter, not 2 Peter. Correction, chapter 5. 1 Peter 5, 13. You know how you get a new car and you don't know where any of the buttons are? Like if you've rented a car and I can't figure out how to turn the, dish, the thing on. And, you know, that's me in a new Bible. Like I don't know where anything is. I don't know where the buttons are because my old one I had so long I just can't see it, but I don't know how to work this new one. But it says in verse 13, chapter 5, that the church, this is Peter saying, I'm reaching out, writing, and this is where I'm writing this letter from. The church is at, uh, the church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, salutes you, and so does Marcus, my son. He's saying that he is writing this from a place called Babylon. Now, Babylon, at the time of this writing, wasn't even a city. It was like a backwater. It was like, well, frankly, I'll do respect to my town. It was like College Grove. 
It was like a, maybe a little, little town. It was like a little out backwater town. There's no historical record at all of a church in Babylon at that time. Here's why that's germane. Revelation 17, 16, 17, 18, you see that the New Testament church, John, referred to Rome as Babylon. Theologians think that when they use Babylon, it was almost like a code word that it's Babylon, but it's really Rome, not as an insult, but to say this is like almost like an under the, water, under the radar letter to say we're not really at Rome. Whatever the case, Babylon, I believe, theologians believe, and I would agree with, that he was writing this letter, not from Jerusalem, where he was called primarily to, but in Rome. So you've got Peter called to the Jerusalem, hanging out in Rome, and you've got Paul, where at the time of this letter, you can cross-reference it with other New Testament writings of Paul, at this very time, was not in Rome, where he was called to be primarily. He was in Jerusalem. And both of them got in all kinds of trouble because it was in Jerusalem. Go to Acts 19, Paul on his way to Jerusalem and just read through it later. Over and over, every city he comes to, people are saying, do not go to Jerusalem. At one point, a prophet says, you're going to die. Someone's, and he takes his cloak off. You might remember this and wraps it around Paul and says, someone's gonna do this to you. And what happened when he got to Jerusalem? Exactly that. He gets ultimately arrested, beaten, thrown in a prison ship, and shipped where? Rome. <laughs> what does all this have to do with anything? It really isn't just a theological bunny trail. I really believe that even Peter and Paul, to the ends of their lives, just like you and just like me, we have this thing that we believe God has called us to do, but yet I really want to do this. Like I really want, Peter, I really want to reach out to Rome, but God has called me to this people group. And I want to go here, and, and I love, you want to talk about the goodness of God? The goodness of God is he can even take my mess up. He can say, Paul, man, I, while I appreciate your enthusiasm, I'm getting you to Rome, because that's where I need you to be. And that's where he ended up. Now he took the scenic route. But miracles happened along the way, a shipwreck, Churches that actually got planted while on a shipwreck. I mean, it's amazing what happened, what God can do. But I say that really to bring home to me that this idea of being a bondservant of Christ, not trying to impress my friends. And if you're Paul, man, I can't really blame the guy. Because these weren't just some ab, you know, abstract group of people. These were his friends. Jerusalem, he grew up there. These, the Pharisees were his co-workers. They all, they knew each other. His family, they're all there. I don't blame him. And incidentally, even if I'm wrong about my conjecture, it doesn't change the ultimate picture, and that is that God is sovereign and he is amazing and how he can take my choice and still weave it back in and what he said he would do in Romans 8. Work it together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's how good he is. He's so good that, and I say this because I get really stressed out that I'm going to miss God. I don't know if you do that or not. I'm getting better at it in my old age. I mean, we're sitting in a building right now that I was kind of stressed out. I don't know what we're going to do. I literally said to a church in March of last year, I don't know. Maybe we're just going to look at each other next year and say it's a good ride. God is good. We're going our several. I don't know. I mean, I just, I wanted to, I didn't want to mess it up, but I didn't. And the goodness of God was that, you know, I get to meet Pastor Jim and suddenly he had this thing going and it hadn't. He's that good. 
He's that good that my mess-ups cannot get me out of this kingdom and that I can't be good enough to get myself into his kingdom. He's just good enough that he chose you and chose me because he loves us. Sought you. And so this idea of a bondservant, here's how I believe this brings us freedom. From the disease to please, from the trap of getting caught into trying to make people happy, and I find myself trapped. Here's why I think this is. Because every day I have choices. Every day you have choices. Do I give to this person who's going on a mission trip? Do I not? Do I sign up for the nursery or do I not? Do I stay in this job or do I? The the day is this, and we find ourselves sometimes making those decisions, not based on what God is telling us, but based on I don't want people to think badly of me. The freedom that a bondservant has is to say that I am here to please Jesus. I'm here to please my master. He said I could go, but he's so good I decided to stay. And now I can wake up every day, his will written on my heart and on my mind, knowing that if this person doesn't like it and it isn't popular, that I'm not going to stand before them someday. When I stand before Jesus, and I believe this is a whole other thing we'll get into, I don't believe I'm going to stand in there as judgment of all the bad things I did. When you look at the Bema seat judgment, it really is a, a reward seat. It's this, wow, you, you nailed this one. You destroyed that. You're awesome. Here, you're there. And all the other stuff that I don't want, that I regret, that I, it's just, it says it will just be burned up. But what I'm getting at is, guess who won't be there on that day with me? You. And you won't be there when I'm there. I won't be there when you're there. I get to stand there on that day and say, Lord, I just really, I just wanted to please you. And he'll be able to say, wow, you did this awesome. Man, reward, enter in, these crowns, these rewards. But here's what I'm driving at. This reward thing someday starts the day that I say, I just want to be a bondservant of you. I want to please you. Now, the danger of this, and I really am getting ready to land this thing. The danger of this is then me trying to please him as a bondservant, as a slave, is me saying for king and country, not because I want to, because I have to. Not because like on the Sons of Liberty this week when they were saying for king and for country, they were doing it because the king was mean and harsh and cruel and they had to serve him. Rather, with George Washington, and this, it was a great scene in this movie when he said, they're not following the king of England because of their passion. It was out of fear. They're following us out of passion because they chose to. The bondservant chooses to follow the king because he's good, because he's kind. And when I think through that and believe that, that he's good, I'm stretching it. And maybe you don't think he's good. Maybe just today stretch it a little bit more than what you believe a little bit ago, just a little bit better. Keep stretching it to the believing that he's so good that he's worth following. That if I let myself go there and believe that my identity is not as a servant, listen, not as a servant by force, but a servant by choice. Not as a servant by force, but a servant by choice. It's a game changer when I understand that identity. And as our worshipers are coming, I want to just say that when you talk about pleasing God, it's not about doing good, being good enough, how bad it's about his work on the cross that it is finished. But when I pray through that an idea of what a bondservant is, that it isn't about being good enough, it's about what pleases God. And what does the Bible tell us that pleases him? 
Hebrews 11.6, come on, do you know it? Faith. Not by what I do, but what I believe. Proverbs 29.25, I read that a minute ago. He says that it's a trap to be in the, of the, what people believe and about you and what you think. But he says, but what is the antidote? But those that trust the Lord will be safe. It's faith that pleases him. What does a bondservant need? They need faith that their master is good. That's why it pleases him. Maybe that's why it was the day in Matthew 3.17 when Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism that it was that day that the Father through the Spirit spoke and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Because I believe it was that day that Jesus accepted his identity and his destiny and said that my Father is good and I'm gonna do whatever he says because not because I have to, but because I choose to. He said, I could have I stopped. I could have put an end to this whole thing, but I chose not to because a bondservant follows by choice, not by force. And my prayer this morning is that our freedom, your freedom, our freedom, how awesome could it be to live in a world where I'm not in bondage of trying to make you happy or you trying to make me happy but I can instead say, oh, no, I'm gonna serve my father. And you know what? When I'm serving my father, there are days that's gonna make everybody happy. There are days that that's gonna make nobody happy. But I can, by faith, say, but I'm gonna do this because I know this is what he's asking. He's good. Can you do that? Can you stretch yourself that far? What about just this week? This afternoon? You look and say, I'm gonna believe it this week. And it's gonna be, you know, someone's gonna ask me to, if I wanna go on a mission trip this week, and I'm gonna say no because God didn't call me to. Because he loves me whether or not I did that. Or for you others that say, you know, I feel like I should go on one because he's asked me to. I'm reading this last verse and then I'm done. I love it because I feel like Peter and Paul, maybe throughout their lives, just like you and I, this was never a one and done. It's a daily thing that I'm dying daily to myself. I'm crucified with Christ, yet I live. He said this, I love this, at the last letter that Peter wrote. Keeping in mind, it was not that long before, just 15 years before, Paul's in his face screaming, oh, look, this is not how it is. You can't be a people pleaser and a bondservant of Christ at the same time. Peter's last letter, somewhere around 64 AD, he's about to be executed because he actually says, I don't have very much longer with you. History tells us that Nero crucified him upside down. But look what Peter's last letters, his last words that he wrote, he says in verse one of chapter one, Simon Peter, he's introducing himself, in his first epistle, he introduces himself as an apostle, but in this one, he says, a bondservant of Jesus. Maybe today, it's Derek Shujan, a bondservant of Jesus that just chooses today. That, and maybe today you blow it a little bit, but hey, the good news is mercy's in you every morning. He's covered all that. It's just not about how good you can do. A bondservant is just how good you can believe he is. Would you believe that with me today? Father, would you give us wisdom and insight into what that looks like and how that plays out in our lives? That a bondservant, we are choosing. You said we could go. You chose us and we have the option to walk away. I don't wanna take that option. I know my salvation is secure in you. I know that, Lord, but I, as a day-to-day -day walk with you, I just wanna choose today. Choose this afternoon. Choose during the Super Bowl. I'm serving you as a bondservant because I choose to, not because I have to. And Lord, with this.
this, I, I know we just threw a ton of information. Lord, could you dig through the information and bring inspiration? In Jesus' name.